0: I'm Caleb Zachard, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Finance. I'm speaking with Leon von Slaven about his new book, The Rise of Central Banks, State Power in Financial Capitalism. Leon is research group leader of the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies. The Rise of Central Banks asks why and how central banks gained incredible influence and prominence in the last half century. Leon looks at developments in both the United States and Europe to show how central bankers wielded new powers and influence over markets and political systems. Leon, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Hi, Caleb. This, this is great to speak about my new book. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, this is a really fascinating book. When I first saw saw it uh, when I was looking at the the Harvard UP catalog, uh, I knew I had to send you an email, talk to you about it. And I think uh, readers will will get certainly get a lot from it, uh, especially you know in today's world where central banks are getting so much attention. But before jumping
1: into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Yes, uh, I'm glad to do that. So I, I'm a sociologist uh, by training. And uh, actually, my PhD uh, was an ethnography on a trading floor of an investment bank. And um, I was trained in this kind of very deep uh, qualitative investigation of traders' practices on trading floors and what what this meant for contemporary finance and how contemporary finance works. And, uh, but I realized that, you know, ultimately, you know, focusing on the micro interactions of people on the trading floor, there are some limits to what you can say about finance and particularly also the the importance of the state and state power for, you know, our contemporary let's put it that way capitalist formation so my background is very much coming out of this phd and seeing uh, or at, at least trying to figure out how i can redefine my my identity as a sociologist looking at broader questions and then then i i started working on this project and actually for quite a while i started in 2013 and i mean this book is published in 2023 so it took it took 10 years to get it Get it done. And that's, you know, that's not even that long compared to how long it
0: takes, uh it takes some some t- to get a book out there. Um uh, you know, why why did you uh decide to write this book? What was going on uh in 2013 for you that made you think that this was the project? Uh assuming that the form it ta- it takes now is the one that you were initially conceiving of?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think uh initially when I started to work on this. Um, I hadn't connected the dots yet. So one of the things I realized is, okay, central banks are extremely important. And what's interesting about them is they are organizations. You know, it's kind of particular buildings in particular cities. I mean, in the US case, you have this network of regional federal reserves, but in general, that, like a central bank is a particular entity that has a building at a particular place. There's particular kinds of people uh, working there. Um, they might come from certain backgrounds. They might, um, you know, have certain kinds of training in economics uh, mostly. And then the question is from where precisely and so on. And mm-hmm. uh, and then they have organizational culture. They have particular ways to talk about the economy out there, how they understand the economy. Um, what they think is politically viable or politically legitimate for them to do as an organization and so on. And, and I thought that actually this is a primary subject for sociologists. You know, uh, my, my feeling was that in economics, certainly, but even also in political science, there is a tendency to abstract from, you know, this more, uh, concrete reality of, of central banking as, as an organizational activity. Uh, but, but that was just a kind of, how do you say methodological approach? It wasn't yet substantively related to any question. You know, it was more like, okay, there is something that I could study as a sociologist, but I'm not exactly sure, you know, why I should, um, uh, and actually, as I describe in the, in the, uh, in the preface to the book, um, it took me quite a while to figure out that ultimately what I'm interested in is that uh, is, is that central banks have these, these, I would say, very special peculiar relationships to finance and financial systems. And if you want to understand their political roles, but also want to understand how they actually conduct policy, you know, this abstract thing that we call monetary policy, you actually have to look at These kinds of relationships at all sorts of levels and in all sorts of, uh, or from all sorts of angles. Um, I mean, as a sociologist, I might be tempted to look at personal relationships between central bankers and the financial system, but that's actually not what I uh, ultimately thought was most interesting. What was most interesting is how they figured out how they can actually uh, interact. Uh, through their uh, through their policy operations with finance, and how that becomes an incredible source of uh, governing capacity uh, for for these organizations, and then ultimately that actually the expansion of finance that we've experienced since the you know at at least the you know 90s, but probably 80s uh, or earlier uh, is actually uh, contributes to what I call the rise of central banks is actually a force of, of, for goods from the perspective of central bankers, but not necessarily from the perspective of society. Uh, so that, that ultimately then became kind of the angle that I thought makes most use of this sociological view or this sociological perspective on these organizations.
0: Uh, what material archival or, or otherwise secondary sources potentially, or, or books you read, uh, did you use in writing this book that were yeah. particularly important for you?
1: Yeah. So as I said, I, my PhD was as an ethnographer. So, and, and I guess there is one strength of ethnography and that is actually to see the depth of, um, people's engagement with the world, with problems, their, you know, their everyday strategies of solving these problems, their everyday strategies of making sense of the world. And that is kind of the deep social reality that I'm ultimately interested in as in as a sociologist. And therefore I still believe ethnography is a great method. But as you said at the beginning, you know, I look at fifty years of central banking. There's no way you can do that as an ethnographer. If you if you know you know, want to want to have a life and a career, uh, you know bef- before you are, you go into retirement. So uh, what I settled on was to combine two. Actually, what I found very good sources. One source is to go into central bank archives. Um, I started with a Swiss central bank. This was partly opportunistic because I was in close to Zurich at the time and. The, the Swiss National Bank has its its archive in Zurich. Uh, and I also visited the, the archive of the Bank for International Settlements, which is kind of the central bank for central banks in, in Basel, uh, funnily. Um, and then I kind of subsequently looked at sources from the Bank of England, uh, which are in the basements at Threadneedle Street, you know, the where the Bank of England is located in the city of London. And then I expanded and used uh, sources from the Federal Reserve and the Bundesbank uh, in all these kind of central bank archives. And I complemented that also with archival sources from more kind of political or national archives in the respective countries. Um, so that, that was one pillar. And the other pillar was what I call or what sociologists call oral history interviews Uh, and they, they are, I mean. They are with former officials. And the interesting thing there is that, um, I mean, there is a problem with oral history interviewing, which is obviously that you rely on the recollection of people who might not only have imperfect recollection, but also have a kind of tendency to see their past and perhaps a more positive or if not positive, then a more teleological light in the sense that they kind of make sense of what happened in the past in terms of what happened later, even though what happened in the past might not be that linearly connected to what happened later. Anyways, so there's all sorts of problems. But one of the key, key strengths of these oral history interviews is that uh, these people are available. So I had this funny thing that I have a kind of more or less 100% what's called response rate. So everybody I tried to get for interviews, more or less everybody uh, was willing to talk to me from high officials, former governors, like, like the governor of the former governor of the Bank of England to the more, the people that I actually concentrated on, which, uh, who are the kind of shop floor people who were actually engaged in the important, um, important changes in policymaking and important changes in the ways to conceive of central banking, uh, in these countries. And, um, so just to add that, uh, my strategy was to ask quite detailed questions about their everyday working lives as central bankers to get a little bit, uh, to address a little bit, this problem that if you ask them more direct questions about policy and how they see policies or how they make sense of the consequences of policies, you might get answers that are not very useful. But if you ask questions about what they did, you know, with who they spoke, you know, uh, with, with which kind of methods they try to improve, you know, policy, uh, policy procedures or whatever, you get detailed answers that are relatively reliable, uh, I would say. So the, these are the two central pillars and then of course uh, I couldn't do everything myself I also used gray literature and and other literature uh, as a complementary source yeah so starting sort of
0: chronologically uh in the 70s where where you begin in the book uh talking about central bankers attempt uh and just g- general political attempts to to be back inflation uh you know as, as uh complicated as this question sort of is, you know, what, what, what caused inflation of the 1970s and how did different central bankers attempt to address this issue at the time?
1: Yeah, that, that I think is a very important question in light of our current inflation crisis because there is one very crucial difference between now and the 1970s. In the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, in most countries that I study, workers had relatively strong bargaining power and you see that inflation actually coincides with an increase in real wages while now we have actually a, a, a decrease of real wages in almost I, I think i mean even in the us where you know there was labor shortage and so on even there you have now drops in real wages and this this is even more true for europe and also for the uk so that that's one of the key drivers at the period that you had maybe external uh, uh, shocks, like the, of course, primarily the oil shock of 1973, but you also had a situation in which um, the bargaining power of labor was indeed uh, larger than it uh, than it is uh, today, uh, and you also had uh, uh, government commitments. Implicit, explicit, to uh, ensure full employment, which of course uh, additionally strengthened the back of labor, but also uh, led them to demand policies that uh, that uh, were supposed to deliver uh, full employment. Um, so these are these are s- uh, some of the, I guess, the, the ingredients. Um, you also, of course, in some countries like the UK. In the 1970s, you also have the explosion of consumer uh, debt, so loans being given to consumers, um, I think that was called higher purchase loans for some weird reason, um, and that of course was an additional impetus for demand because you have this explosion of uh, what's called debt-based consumption uh, in that period, um, and so that, that, that uh, there is this conf- confluence of these political, societal, uh, and more external factors, um, if you could call an oil shock an external factor, of course, that's also something that's kind of produced through conflicts, uh, but more on the international
0: scale. So, yeah, at this, at this time, and you discussed this, that this sort of, the, the dominant framework was Keynesian, uh, Keynesianism, uh, was this, yeah. uh, was Keynesianism the, uh, central framework uh, of of thinking being used by central bankers at all the central banks that you looked at or was there a variation across central banks
1: significant variation so um i should i should say that you know there's i guess two ways to think about the post war period in very rough terms you could call this a kind of for this period where in almost every country and country you have what's called wage uh, wage led growth that is through increases in wages and, uh, you know, investments that exploit uh, economies of scale, you had, you had growth rates that, uh, high growth rates, and then you have, uh, you have reductions in productivity rates and continuing increases in va- wages in the late sixties, early seventies, which then induce, uh, inflation. But the, so that's the more or less, uh, the constellation, in all the countries, but the role of governments the role of central banks and the importance of Keynesianism vary significantly. I mean, in uh, in the UK, there is no question that at least there was an attempt to uh, implement consistent Keynesian demand management. Uh, there was a centralized uh, forecasting system run by the treasury, which was supposed to identify uh, how you can co- identify the needed, the needed stimuli to get to full employment and then both monetary and fiscal policy were supposed to be used to, to kind of bring, bring demand uh, to a level that can exploit full capacity in the economy. In Switzerland and Germany, that's one of the reasons why these cases are somewhat the contrasting cases in my story. <clears throat> the situation is, very, is slightly different. In Germany, you had a very short spring, kind of very short period of Keynesianism, which only started in 1967. Uh, an experiment in Keynesian demand management, which, uh, led, which came out of a crisis, uh, in 1967, uh, and, um, was soon killed by the Bundesbank through its very, uh, very, uh, um, interventions to kill inflation uh, from, uh, 1973 onwards. So you don't really have an institutionalized Keynesianism in Germany. Um, you only have very weak attempts to implement some, something like that. In Switzerland, you don't even have that. You have an attempt in the late 60s, early seventies to address what they see as excess, uh, credit and excess consumption, uh, and, uh, Access inflows of dollars from abroad, and they try to create a kind of more centralized uh, policy apparatus uh, for that purpose at this time. But uh, there is such strong vested interests against this from private banks, but also from industry associations that are so used to be dominant in economic policy making that are that they are not willing. Uh, to give power to government, uh, for a co- more coordinated policy. Um, so I would say that roughly speaking, there is a contrast between Germany and Switzerland as countries that have more corporatist economic policy, whereas in the UK, but also in the US, you indeed have a more government driven economic policy. Uh, that doesn't rely as much on coordination between companies, uh, employees, and their respective institutional representations as you have in, 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 in Switzerland and, and Germany.
0: In the uh, first chapter, you argue that the development of new governing techniques at central banks is one of the key drivers of neoliberal policy and institutional change. I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that and, and, and uh, in, in what this context of central banks, what you mean by
1: neoliberalism. Okay. That's that's a very good uh, question and helps me to clarify, I think, a key point in, in this book. Um, I would say, okay, I, I make a rather strong distinction in the book between the ways in which the Bundesbank and the Swiss National Bank, the Central Bank of Switzerland, addressed the inflation problem in the 70s, using monetarism for that purpose I should say, a practical version of largerism, not a textbook version. And on the other hand, the ways in which the Fed, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England later in the late 70s, starting in the US in the late 70s, in the UK case only actually from from uh, 1992 onwards, use a very different technique to address the inflation problem. And so I would say there is two radically different versions of neoliberalism that are associated with these two experiments, the Swiss German one from the seventies and yeah. and going on then until the nineties, um, and the experiments from the Fed and the Bank of England starting somewhat later and resting on fundamentally different preconditions. Uh, and one of the key differences is of course the role of organized labor which is very important for the swiss and german context and not at all important for this for the us and uk case essentially because at the point at which the central banks launched their uh, their uh, anti-inflation monetary policies organized labor has more or less disappeared or dis- disintegrated Whereas in Germany and Switzerland, organized labor is part of monetarism, sort of embedded in monetarism. That's one of the key differences. And the other key difference is the role of finance. In, in, the, in Germany and, and Switzerland, central banks try and use, try to preserve and use conservative banking, that is a kind of banking in which banks, you know, manage customer accounts. Uh, savings accounts more or less in traditional ways. They give credit uh, according to relatively stable patterns and kind of credit worthiness criteria that don't change much. Whereas, and and the central bank uses this stability to bring the money supply sort of in line with more or less what they announced to be important for, for limiting inflation, whereas in the UK and US case. It's market-based finance that becomes a key, what all I call infrastructural foundation for, um, for the kind of monetary policy that the Fed and the Bank of England adopt, uh, in these, in these later de- decades. Yeah. I would love if you,
0: would, if you could talk a little bit more about the, the, uh, monetary policy, um, of, uh, England and the U S and yeah. What, yeah, what exactly the sort of the policy that they pioneered uh, yeah. and,
1: and, and how it, it, it sort of changed the role and the prominence of central banks. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I think that's actually what is most, the most crucial part of the story because it ultimately brings home this argument that in contemporary central banking, there is this connection between monetary policy and financialization and that monetary policy uses financialization and fosters financialization and and therefore also has quite problematic implications and the origins of this linkage are precisely with the Anglo-Saxon cent- central banks uh, and and their ways to figure out how to conduct monetary policy from the uh Volcker shock from the Volcker shock onward so um the Volcker shock Volcker uh in 19 uh 79 announced that he would use now the money supply as his cr- criterion to steer uh, monetary policy, and in the in the US case, in the Fed case, did, this particularly meant steering um, the the interest rate on the federal funds market uh, according to then the money supply as a as a as a kind of um, a criterion uh, that is supposed to be targeted. And, uh, that's really the origin of of it, but interestingly enough, the failure of this Volcker experiment is the origin of, I would say, contemporary central banking. And because what Volcker discovered was that, um, market participants, financial market participants would react very sensitively to the ways in which he would change interest rates, and that there would be a kind of almost kind of symbolic communication between the ways in which the Fed would increase or decrease federal funds rates in response to expectations of future inflation or inflation risks, and the ways in which the the market participants perceive these actions as being credible or not credible to actually address the inflation problem. So what happened, for instance, and what's really important is what happened, for instance, in 1981. The, inf- the actual inflation rate was dropping because the U.S. economy was in shatters because of the, the Volga early the, the first Volga increases in the interest rate. But the bond rates, the, the rates on, you know, U.S. treasuries, were rising, indicating that, uh, that the market didn't believe Volcker had gotten the inflation problem under control. So what did Volcker do? He increased the federal funds rate, the interest rate on this interbank market. That's the key market uh, for, for central bank implementation. He increased the interest rate despite the fact that the economic fundamental data indicated that the, the fundamental economic data indicated that actually inflation was on the, on the you know, uh, uh, was, was dropping. Uh, and I think that's very crucial if you look at what, you know, uh, Alan Greenspan then said maybe 15 years later when asked, you know, how do we see whether our monetary policy is restrictive enough? And he said, we just look at the bond market. And so that to me was really revealing to see that the failed experiment in monetarism that Volcker launched, Volker launched in, uh, 1979 initiated a learning process through which uh, he discovered, and then Greenspan uh, discovered even more, that the central bank would use primarily its interaction with the financial markets as the basis for policymaking. Uh, So what became the kind of dogma of central banks from that experiment onwards is that. If financial markets believe monetary policy is credible to bring inflation down or to keep it down at the level at which it should be, then central banks have done their job. And that became the kind of framework in which, you know, central bankers would think about the inflation problem. There's all sorts of other factors, of course, why the inflation rate actually dropped, you know, the economic recession, the disempowering of labor, the China shock, the fact that China kind of. Floated international markets with cheap goods, but for central banks to kind of operationalize what they understand as their monetary policy and how monetary policy is effective, this mirror game with markets became the critical element. Uh, so that that is uh, what I describe in in the chapter in the book that's that's called uh, Hegemonizing Hegemonizing Financial Market Expectations, which should really capture uh, this, this, this origin of what later was then codified as inflation targeting. Did you have a sense of what the reception was of Paul
0: Volcker's, um, of the work that Paul Volcker was doing at the Fed, uh, with the reception or what the assessments might have been, uh, for central bankers at other banks, seeing what Volcker was attempting to do? Um, what was, was, was there more or less people, other banks following his lead uh, or whether divergences in his approach. Yeah, to it?
1: yeah that, that's a very good question. So I think, even though I don't cover it, it's important to mention here that of course the Volcker shock, shock initiated the uh, developing country debt crisis, and so the, your question would be answered differently if you know if I was an expert on Argentina or or other countries. Uh, than from the perspective of Germany, the UK, and so on. So I think Volcker, uh, what Volcker brought home was uh, that even in a country that had struggled for for the entire 1970s to address the inflation problem, uh, central banks would assume political authority and would you know, almost stipulate their legitimacy to rigorously act on the inflation problem and that that was the primary source of legitimacy of central banks, you know, I mean, the Germans and the Swiss had done that maybe six, seven, eight years earlier, but then you could always say, okay, Switzerland and Germany are special because these are economies that have a more export focus. People there might be more inflation averse than in other countries but then you know volcker really changed the game globally um and um in the uk context uh you have of course margaret thatcher uh coming to government in 19 uh 79 you know in the same year that volcker became fed chairman of the fed and thatcher uh put in put inflation control you know f- winning the fight against inflation at the center of her program. But what's really important to understand is that this program, I mean, Thatcher's program against inflation was very inconsistent and ultimately also failed. I mean, not that she didn't bring down inflation, she, she did to some extent, but not through thought through policy, you know, because she started and thought, okay, it's easy. You set a monetary target because she was a monetarist and she thought she could do the same thing that the Germans had done. You set a monetary target and then you just increase interest rates until you hit the target, but it soon became apparent that first the targets were very uh, almost meaningless, they were statistically very volatile because the Monetary statistics were changing at the time because the behavior of banks and customers, how to, you know, save money, how to use money, how, how to invest money, how to grant credit changed. And so the statistics statistics were not reliable. This was one problem. The other problem was that uh, Thatcher was killing industry because interest rates were so high that uh, companies couldn't couldn't roll over their loans anymore. So she rolled back and she actually rolled back monetarism. I mean, this kind of monetarism where you just increase interest rates to get inflation under control only six months into office. So the Thatcher experiment in contrast to the Walker experiment was very short lived. There were some tax reforms and some austerity measures that then were alternative means to address inflation simply by kind of bringing the economy down more or less. But there was no consistent monetary policy strategy in the UK uh, in, the, in the Thatcher period. What the U- UK learned from Volcker only became apparent much later. Uh, there was Eddie George, uh, the governor, who kind of took from Volcker this idea that you know focusing on the inflation problem would would, would be the, the mission for the Bank of England and would also Grant legitimacy to the to the Bank of England, but he also, uh, in this context of the 80s, hadn't figured out how to do that. What then happened in the early 90s is that that uh, that in the in the aftermath of of a another disaster, namely how how the UK crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism, the the, the stable exchange rate mechanism with other European countries, the the Bank of England realized it could use a Volcker type of method, not only to get the inflation down, but importantly, to be the primary actor in doing that. So the the Bank of England realized, okay, we can use methods that Volcker used to raise our own political power. Uh, And that was at a time at which the Bank of England wasn't independent yet. if if you want to get the story straight, you see that the Bank of England increased its power at a situation at which actually formally it wasn't independent yet. That was namely in 1992, 1993 that it kind of made this uh, turn. And the key again was that the Bank of England would use financial markets to leverage its own policy influence because it would signal to markets what its own intentions in the in interest rate setting would be The markets would react to that. And then the the actual principal, the the guy in the treasury, the the head of the treasury, the chancellor of the exchequer or the prime minister couldn't really do anything anymore because the markets had already kind of reacted. And if, if, if the government wanted to set its monetary policy course, it would need to go not just against the Bank of England, but also against the financial markets, which were on the Bank of England's side. And that fundamentally changed the power relationships and then made the Bank of England the true authority on monetary policy at a time at which it wasn't independent yet, uh, but had successfully kind of emulated a Volcker style communication with financial markets. In chapter four of the book, you talk
0: about money markets as this infrastructure that central banks are using primarily for, for interest rate targeting. Can you describe how this works and how uh, central banks work with, uh,
1: money markets? Yeah, I, I can. So, um. The argument that I that I make it, make in the book is to understand you know this this empowerment of central banks by using policy techniques has these two levels. One level is this more expectational communicational level that I just described. You know uh, the ways in which Volcker figured out how to communicate with bond markets, and the and the and the Bank of England did so uh, 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 later later after the exchange rate disaster and so that's one level and the other level is the uh, implementation level and so the implementation level is equally important and that's how central banks make sure that their immediate interest rate uh, interventions are transmitted through the money markets to the broader financial system. So. Um, The ways this works is that central banks, uh, if you look at the broader financial system and the overall credit economy as a whole, of course, the interventions of central banks, I mean, this has somewhat changed with quantitative easing, but usually the interventions of central banks are just a tiny fraction, right? So this raises the question, how can this tiny fraction of interventions change credit conditions and financial conditions in the whole economy? to make sure that actually, you know, the central bank realizes what, what it aims to do with its monetary policy. And so that raises operational problems and the development of money markets that, that are associated with the rise of sort of, um, of shadow banking with, uh, with, um, sort of also financial liberalization actually, ironically, increase the leverage that central banks would have Uh, so the the emergence, in other words, the emergence of things like repo markets, things like uh, markets for commercial uh, asset backed commercial paper and, and the interconnection of these different money markets on a global scale ultimately created more leverage for central bank interventions. Um, And the reason for this is that, uh, these refinancing operations that central banks do with their immediate counterparties uh, can be transmitted more quickly uh, and actors react more sensitively if markets are relatively price sensitive and if these markets are interconnected. Um, So, and that is actually somewhat ironic because uh, central banks up until maybe the eighties in most countries thought they need to, rather put a fence around their uh their immediate counterparties and the rest of the financial system to make sure that their immediate counterparties would react in ways that they deem predictable and so regulations were supposed to help with this to kind of define this more privileged relationship between counterparties and the and the central bank and then financial liberalization processes undermine this fence being put around these immediate counterparties and that gradually central banks and there again, primarily the Fed realize actually this, uh, this collapse of this fence, you know, this collapse of this protected area in which the central bank operates is to the advantage of the central bank because it can then, you know, uh, spread its signals through money markets more quickly uh, than before. So to put it simply, the rise of shadow banking increases what I call in the book, the infrastructural power of uh, central banks. Now, why does it matter? You could say, okay, that's just, you know, financial changes in financial markets, changing the conditions of monetary policy. I think it matters because it meant that central banks would see the development of these kind of money markets as a positive thing and they actively contributed uh, they actively contributed to their development, right? So for instance, the Fed was very important, uh, in the development of modern repo markets in the U S um, the, the, the same is true for repo markets in the UK and, and Europe. So central banks were actually becoming proponents and architects of these types of markets that proved to be uh, useful for them for monetary policy and The problem with this is that these markets turned out to be really the weak spots in the financial crisis of 2008, uh, which raises the question of uh, the role of central banks in this crisis. Because you could say, you know, in some ways by constructing this market-based financial system, I mean market-based in the sense that you have these interconnected money markets that are fairly liberalized, uh, central banks Contributed to the construction of a system that ultimately turned out to be very fragile, um, and and so that's the story I tell in this
0: chapter. Yeah, I would love if you if you could elaborate on that because uh, it's it's definitely really interesting. Uh, you know, your discussion about how central bankers, as, as you put it, abandon regulation uh, and just the role that you see of central banks in
1: contributing to the global financial crisis. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the standard story would be that they didn't see it coming, uh, in the sense that they were so focused on the inflation problem that they didn't see how systemic risks were accumulating in the global financial system, particularly in the North Atlantic financial system, in this interaction between the U.S. and its subprime mortgage market and the whole money market system that would involve, you know, banks from Europe and other uh, and other areas uh, with this subprime market. Uh, so the the general story is that central banks just didn't, didn't see it coming. Um, and, uh, the argument that I make is that this, that there is at least a complementary important aspect, and that is central banks were vested in this system and the ways they were vested into this system was because the ways in which they would conduct inflation targeting, monetary policy uh, was an integral part of this market-based system. As I explained, there was this very close interconnection and and that's kind of the money market side, but then there's also this other side that central banks realized as the inflation problem was somewhat becoming less important. In the 90s as for reasons that we talked about earlier because of the various structural factors also that suppressed inflation and actually led to deflationary uh, tendencies central banks realized there is potentially another important role for them and that is to you know s- steer the macroeconomy at large increasing increasingly also kind of influencing developments in growth and and so on as so the growth uh, growth of economies and this is the other side of the story central banks also leveraged this because they saw that they were the ones who could uh, steer economies using finance as their vehicle so just to give one example that's particularly important Mm -hmm. in the us the fed from the 1990s onwards realized that since the economy was becoming more and more reliant on the development of asset values values on stock markets and bond markets its own influence on asset values were a very powerful, powerful lever on macroeconomic growth, and so the Fed economists and Fed officials realized they they can essentially assume dominance, more or less, in macroeconomic governing because they can use their their connections to finance their operational and kind of interactional relationships with finance to uh, conduct macroeconomic policy at large. And so that's the other side of the coin is that um, through these kind of money market relationships, but also through these macroeconomic governance relationships, central banks, I think, were not just blind, they actually were an integral part of an increasingly financializing economy. Um, So just, just to support this, I mean, as I said, from the 1990s onwards, there is something that's called the Fed put or the Greenspan put. So the Fed and the Green and Greenspan particularly uh, reacted to drops in asset values by lowering the interest rate, signaling to markets that, you know, they would keep everything under control, that people could continue to expand credit and so on. And that would become a very important element connecting central banking to this excessive expansion of finance uh, in this in this period, and 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 that of course I don't know whether we still have time uh, to speak about it. This uh, this of course hasn't disappeared because quantitative easing is only the most extreme version of this same thing. I mean, quantitative easing is taking this approach that you know the, that the Fed put you know uh, first exemplified to the extreme. Um, so yeah, that that that's what I wanted to say about the role of central banks in the financial crisis. Is, that particularly in this version of financialized growth that you see in the Anglo-Saxon countries, central banks have become integral part of that. Right, yeah,
0: I think let, let's let's talk about the uh, response to the 2008 financial crisis and the development of QE. And I think before asking you uh, just to, to talk about the development of QE and how you see it as kind of continuation where uh, is, you know, putting, putting this, uh, uh, this sort of Greenspan policy on steroids. Uh, I'll just highlight the fact that Ben Bernanke's autobiography um, about the time was called "The Courage to Act." So, yes. <laughs> so uh, what what act did he take, and what and why was it so courageous?
1: Yeah, I, I I think there is this funny or not so funny, but a little bit ironic thing that Bernanke uh, Bernanke's own story, and sometimes the story being told is that he studied, uh, you know the. The Great Depression, and he learned from the Great Depression that central banks shouldn't hold back in the aftermath of financial crises because that would lead to long-term depression and maybe even the political uh, uh, the, the political political catastrophes that followed on from the, the Great Depression in the uh, in the 1930s, particularly in Germany. Um, but uh, but I think. The other side of this is Bernanke transitioned from a guy together with, uh, you know, Timothy Geithner and, uh, Hank Paulson who kind of acted as what they call the firefighters to avoid collapsing banks, to avoid collapsing insurance companies, to avoid collapsing markets two of these people who became convinced that as central bankers, they could almost do anything. Uh, and there is this interesting way in which these two things are connected because, and that's something I describe in the book, because quantitative easing was born out of the emergency operations in 2008. There is an immediate historical and systematic connection. The, the balance sheet of the federal reserve, expanded first because of these crisis interventions designed by Bernanke and Geithner and, and, and Paulson. And then the, 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 the Fed, the Federal Reserve just took the rather small next step to commit whole or uh, to, uh, to its new role, uh, and, and conduct quantitative easing. So quantitative easing is a very pro- problematic connection between policies targeted at the financial system, like, you know, making sure that, you know, that, you know, the credit channel keeps on working, that, you know, uh, you know, mortgages keep on being churned out by banks, making sure that asset values don't drop so that banks get into trouble making sure that money markets are flooded with liquidity, uh, in some ways kind of kind of taking responsibility for, for risk perceptions and liquidity in the whole financial system from the side of central banks and connecting that to a macroeconomic rationale. So quantitative easing is a way to connect financial market policies with a macro, macroeconomic rationale. Um, and uh, there's a complicated theory that Bernanke and others promote for why kind of repairing, if you like, a defunct financial system can lead to growth and, uh, and you know, more employment in the broader economy. There is a kind of complicated theory in which they try to rationalize this. But ultimately, uh, it's a very prob- problematic way to try to boost growth and, uh, employment. So the courage to act from my point of view should have been with other actors because, uh, they would have had more appropriate and perhaps even more democratically legitimate means to boost growth and employment and this problematic connection that central banks have drawn between financial market interventions and macroeconomic policy uh should should be criticized and should be i think rather seen as a case of uh a failed experiment or, a, or at least an experiment that that has led to very problematic um um side effects i mean rising wealth inequalities continuing problems of bloated financial systems and so forth.
0: In the wake of the, you know, the practice of quantitative easing, uh, setting, you know, interest rates at, you know, in the U.S. near zero and in some, in some places at, at, you know, rates going, going negative and the sort of the position where I, I think unemployment peaked at around 10% in the U.S. I know it was much higher in Europe uh, during the financial crisis. Uh, and then it, you know, goes down to a to you know pre COVID. It's about, you know, I think unemployment in the US is like three to half four four percent with, uh, you know, rates sl- starting to 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 go back up. And then the pandemic happens, and then all of a sudden there's there's a new policy that comes in. I know that this is this is getting a little bit far far afield, but you know, how, how do you what do you sort of make of of the post uh, financial cri- you know financial crisis policy and. Uh, the legitimacy of central banking and kind of you know br- bring us up to speed today. I guess what this kind of fifty-year history that you look at uh, the implications that it has for just interpreting what's going on
1: in yeah. this world. Yeah. So in historical terms, I think the lesson from my book is that the, that central banks established this connection with finance to empower themselves first in fighting inflation. And then, increasingly, in conducting macroeconomic policy, and with increasingly bloated financial systems, it has become increasingly difficult to distinguish with with the actions of in terms of the actions of central banks, what they do for finance and for financial markets, and what they do for the larger economy, and and that uneasy connection uh, uh, is. It leads to, I think, a lot of problems with, that we confront today. Um, one of the problems, as I already mentioned, is then that this becomes an engine for inequality. Uh, that it becomes an engine for continuous financialization, which ultimately is not sustainable. But then central banks keep up the kind of uh, the um, or or lead actors to continue playing the game, despite the fact that, you know, the game ultimately is not sustainable. Um, and, and then I think there is this very interesting twist that comes in, that comes in with the pandemic, not so much the pandemic, but the, but the uh, post-pandemic inflation. So there's all sorts of reason why, reasons that have nothing to do with central banks for why you have inflation in that period. You know, you can't blame central banks. For the fact that you have this these supply supply chain bottlenecks, or that you have uh, an energy pr- kind of historic in energy price shock, and you know you can excuse central banks for not reacting earlier because uh, you know this came very sudden, as a lot of historical things come very suddenly, you know. But I think th- the area where you can lay some blame with central banks is that they have constructed through the post-financial crisis period, through the pandemic have constructed an imaginary or an image of themselves as all powerful actors. And that has, I think, led to over expectations with what central banks are, what they can do and what they should do. You know, now we have discussions about central banks fighting climate change. And of course they should do their part. But I would argue they should not be the central actors in this process for various reasons, a lot to do with, you know, the fact that they use, are going to use finance to address climate change. And I think there should be other channels that are more appropriate to use. Um, so I think that's the primary problem there that there is this over, uh, yeah, over expect the, 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 the too high expectations that central banks are, bankers have to some extent created themselves about what they can do about their powers, uh, which in some ways are very limited. Um, I mean, in historical terms, if you look beyond finance and beyond financialized economies, what central banks can do is actually quite limited. Um, and, and it should be limited. I mean, if you look at the inflation problem, central banks, if, if we had better Politics and we had better institutions and we had better conditions his, uh, conditions to do that. I think a better way to address inflation would be through a more coordinated approach between finance ministries and central banks. And central banks should only play one, perhaps even smaller bit in reducing inflation um, uh, in cooperation with with uh, with finance ministries. Um, so so I think that's, that's very much the lesson I would take from, from, my own, uh, from my own book. Since the book
0: came out, is there any reception or, or feedback that you've received that has uh, strengthened your view in some of the arguments you, you made or has uh, maybe made you change your
1: mind about certain things that you, that you argued? I think that that, that will still come. Uh, I, I will have uh, Book launch um, event uh, in two weeks at the London School of Economics, where I kind of worked for five years and partly on this on this uh, research. And then I have a couple of other talks coming up. But there is just one one event that I like to mention, which kind of rather reinforced my thinking, and that was the ousting of Liz Truss. You know the. The, the shortest prime minister in the history, in UK history in United Kingdom history, I think he, she was prime minister for 50 days and, uh, I don't want to spread conspiracy theories and the bank of England denies its own role, but certainly it played a role in, in, in that, uh, you know, in that very short, uh, premiership and this very short, uh, government, uh, and, uh, Sort of I, I think I'm going to use that episode to emphasize, you know the, this weird relationship between powerful central banks and then sometimes impotent, impotent governments, as was the case with this trustless government, uh, that, yeah, is, are at least one feature of, of our age. Well, Leon, thank you
0: so much for being guest of the New Books Network. It was great talking with you. The book is "The Rise of Central Banks: State Power and Financial Capitalism from Harvey Diversity Press. Thank you so much. Thank you.